that's what evolved. It was the legal language, these special incantations to allow it to happen across groups of people over decades or centuries. We had to evolve the language. I think that's a lot of the real artifact of science. You're listening to Numerically Speaking, the Anaconda podcast. On this podcast, we'll dive into a variety of topics around data, quantitative computing, and business and entrepreneurship. We'll speak to creators of cutting-edge open-source tools and look at their impact on research in every domain. We're excited to bring you insights about data, science, and the people that make it all happen. Whether you want to learn about AI or grow your data science career, or just better understand the numbers and the computers that shape our world, Numerically Speaking is the podcast for you. Make sure to subscribe. For more resources, please visit anaconda.com. I'm your host, Peter Wayne. This episode is brought to you by Anaconda, the world's most popular data science platform. We are committed to increasing data literacy and to providing data science technology for a better world. Anaconda is the best way to get started with, deploy, and secure Python and data science software on-prem or in the cloud. Visit anaconda.com for more information. All right, welcome, and I'm so excited to introduce Paco Nathan to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Super, super excited to talk about all manner of interesting and philosophical things. So Paco is really a man about town in open source and data and analytics and AI. Paco is the managing partner for Derwin, where they do a lot of open source integration now, but that is one of many things he's done in a long story career. Paco, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit for our listeners, for those who are not familiar with you? Peter, thank you very much. I'm, I'm so glad to be here. I guess I made the fundamental mistake against all warning by elders to take a deep dive into a subject in the 1980s when I was in grad school called artificial intelligence. And, you know, everybody was saying, wow, this isn't going to work. And there was a subcategory of it that mm -hmm. people especially said, oh, this is a complete waste. And of course, I dove into that for a number of years, <laughs> which we now know as neural networks. I had this odd background of AI. And, and before that, my undergrad had been interdisciplinary and data analytics, oddly enough, mm -hmm. and nobody cared. And so for a long time, I worked as a network engineer. I worked on you know network security, uh, telecom, but then eventually data science took off, distributed systems in the right. cloud took off. I was one of the guinea pigs when AWS launched. So I, I got to mm -hmm. lead some teams who tried out new services and whatnot. Anyway, it's been a long career, but still going. And we're going to draw many of the learnings from that career as we go through the conversation today. Before this, and before we sort of talked about you coming on the podcast, I was doing, so some of our listeners may know or may have seen some of the talks I've given around what I've seen recently happen in open source. So certainly the, the open source foundations for modern numerical computing for what we call AI and machine learning, all these open tools created by a collaboration, really a stone soup, right, kind of style of collaborations among many people to build now, what is the cutting-edge state-of-the-art for humanity kind of software for doing all these really great things? And so I was really starting to nerd out on open source in this way, thinking about the fundamental economics of it, people trying to build companies around open source, or big companies taking open source but not doing much to sustain it. And I was thinking, and in doing all this thinking and doing these kinds of talks, I came across some writings of yours. And so I was thinking today that we could talk about some of the thoughts on the so-called Moloch, right, of capitalism. Is open source compatible with this? What is the future of software as software by itself commoditizes and cybernetic systems become the thing that are really the alpha, the drivers of value and growth from a capitalistic perspective? This is the conversation I thought we'd have. And then once we started doing some of the planning, it turns out it actually gets much more interesting and more weird. 
And so I'm not even sure, I guess I'll start by putting some context around it, which is that my thinking around open source, what I love about open source, and the reason I care so much about open fundamentals for numerical computing for AI and ML, because I believe that we are really going through a change right now as a society. We're moving to a cybernetic era. So all of the drivers of growth and all the competition, all these things, people talk about data being the new oil. And I kind of see why they say that, but I kind of don't agree with that statement. I think prediction is the new alpha, right? It always has been, but more and more, it's the ability to do better sense-making to see something happening, take that insight and turn it into a differentiated action that's where a lot of the competition is going to happen. It's really informational, where the growth will be for a lot of companies and where the competition will be as companies compete with each other for opportunities. And so in thinking about all this, it's like, okay, if all the growth and capitalism chases growth, right? Capitalism works at the margins, as my friend Jim Rott likes to say. If capitalism is chasing growth and all the growth comes from information systems and all those information systems sit on top of open source that is being built by a couple of volunteers and various random <laughs> randos around the internet. Is this really the future economic system of humanity? Is this actually the same way to do this is what we want? So that's kind of how I got into all this thinking. And then realizing that, okay, we actually need to lay down the ethos of open source and the values of open source collaborations need to permeate the new kinds of companies we build. And so my co-founder Travis has talked a lot about, you know, in fact, he has um, a whole thing that he does with his, the VC, he actually has put a, a VC fund together and he tries to get companies that use open source to commit 1% of their equity. To, he calls it fair OSS, right? To actually let the open source software ecosystem benefit from the upside of the things they're building. So things like this got, really got me thinking about the future of companies, the future of corporations, cooperatives. It could be cooperatives. Cooperatives was a big thing in the 70s. Not as big of a deal now, but why not? So all of this stuff got me thinking about these things. And so maybe we should go all the way back. And Paco, you could tell us the very beginnings of modern human collaboration. What does that look like? And what was the motivation for that? And what fundamentally changed? You know, where I picked up was looking at just how strange corporate law is and the practice of having a publicly held corporation. They perpetuate even beyond the people who started them. There are corporations now right. who are, that are over 400 years old. And the thing is, what they do is they tend to externalize risk and they sort of collect wealth and they have this kind of operational boundary around them. And when you start to describe it, it acts a lot like a living cell. And that was the thing that really kind of tipped me off. There was an attorney. I had a bookstore in Austin. I know you're in Austin. I lived there for 20 years. I had this weird bookstore that I started called Fringeware. We had a lot of zines and small press and performance art and whatnot. There was an attorney hanging around. This was like early days of EFF. There was an attorney hanging around. He had this thought experience like, what if we created a, a chatbot? Because we had a chatbot for our system. What if we created a chatbot and created a, a corporation that only owned that bot and then somehow get the bot on the board of directors and have everybody else resign? What if you actually had like some sort of automated system that owned itself? You know, mm -hmm. where can we go from there? These ideas were going around, I think, as we were sort of launching into recognition of what was happening with the internet and cyberpunk culture and all this. And so I, I did a real deep dive into a lot of like economic history of where do corporations mm -hmm. come from? And, and to your point, if you look back into the late 1500s, early 1600s, like around 1601, I think is when Queen Elizabeth I signed what was called the, um, the Insurance Act, 
-hmm. it established this basis for having corporation. And it was followed up by, you know, you've seen the history of like the British East India Company. Before then, if you had a venture, if you were like going to set sail from England and do some sort of a business venture, if you lost everything, like you lost a ship, not only would you go bankrupt, but you go to jail and your family would go to jail. There was this thing called debtor's prison. Mm-hmm. And so by establishing insurance as a practice, we could actually do capital ventures without putting someone's entire family at risk of, of going to prison. And this was a phenomenal shift in thinking. And I mean, one of the things that came out of it was Lloyd's of London. They were basically people hanging around a coffee house in, in London, and they took advantage of writing some insurance notes and look where it led. But I mean, you, you follow this trajectory and it comes across over the Atlantic you know, the Americas, you see practice of corporations in the Americas. In fact, the, mm-hmm. the Massachusetts Bay Company was one of the examples. That's of right. A public company. And then you see it in the, in the seven, sorry, in the 1800s, late 1800s, 19th century. In the U.S., there was a very famous court case of Southern Pacific Railroad versus Santa Clara County, something that was uh, done in basically it was the establishing of this notion of like corporate personhood. And if you mm-hmm. read about Citizens United and all that, that happened back in the late 1800s. And so when you really dig into some of the theory behind this, it gets pretty weird. I mean, even the mm-hmm. stuff that's written in the law is relatively strange prose, if you were to read it that way. I think there's some really fantastic people in this area. One person I mentioned, I mean, talking about law and corporations, one person I really like is Gunther Teubner. He's mm-hmm. out of London School of Economics, a few other schools, but he had written Law as an Autopoetic System. And it's mm-hmm. this idea of like legal discourse, basically trying case law over and over is kind of a rhetorical oscillator. It's a thing that resembles living systems in a way. And if you dig back into it, this idea of autopoiesis comes from, and the people who really pushed it were one of my heroes, Umberto Maturana and Francisco Varela. They had written Autopoiesis and Cognition which is a really small but very informative book from the 1970s about second-order cybernetics and how to not think about, let's not talk about consciousness, but talk about cognition. How can Mm -hmm. an organism recognize itself, its own boundaries, and sort of Mm -hmm. self-produce? And once you start to dive into there, it really opens up this interesting history. It kind of leads to a blueprint for what we would recognize today as a lot of architectures of AI systems, systems of people and machines. The trace on Maturana is, is fascinating because he had been in this project called uh, Cybersyn in Chile under the Allende government. They, they basically had the bright idea to set up a, a team that would practice data science on behalf of the economics of the country. And, you know, they had one dial-up line into a... And this was in the, this was in the 70s, right? Yeah, early, like, they started yeah. in the late 60s with Stafford Beer uh-huh. advising. And they set it up and they, they didn't even have like computer generated graphics. They had people with pens making the graphics, but they had this whole like Star Trek kind of command center. Well, and- actually, technically back then, they also called people computers. So technically, they were computer yeah. generated graphics. <laughs> you know, the thing that's crazy about it is, I mean, Maturana was, was one of the principals. The person who was leading that, though, was Fernando Flores. And when the Pinochet government came in, they labeled these people socialists. Because they're like, you know, they're applying data science to try to untangle supply chain. Clearly, they're leftists. And <laughs> Fernando Flores went to prison for a number of years. You know, you can draw a line, though, because a, a years later, professors at Stanford and Berkeley got him out of prison, brought him to the Bay Area. One of my professors was Terry Winograd, who started Human Computer Interface 
lab at, at Stanford. And so Flores and Winograd later did a book. It's called Understanding Computers and Cognition. And mm -hmm. it really, it kind of builds on this. They had this notion of exploring what at the time was, if you recall, there was this term called groupware for about 30 mm -hmm. seconds. But the idea is how could we have extended social systems that have feedback loops, that have cybernetic right. principles, that involve people and machines, and can lead toward what we're claiming would be AI. An interesting side effect is one of the spinouts of that lab, a couple of young graduate students started a little company called Google. So, you know, it, it's really interesting. Just like, around the search feature of the groupware. Imagine if they had the messaging feature. Oh, I think I got Gmail. Yeah, or the advertising features. Of groupware, because everyone wants that in their groupware. Right. <laughs> There's some really fascinating work by Flores, if you look into some of his writings and all. I believe he's still in Berkeley at this point. Yeah, actually, Lorena had interviewed him. What this draws on, though, goes back further. There was a, a series of conferences back in the 50s called Macy Conferences. And basically, people had recognized that they were seeing systems that were extremely large and complex and had a lot of outcome. Like, they'd just gone through World War II. They'd seen mm -hmm. you know, the first deployment of nuclear weapons in war. They'd right. seen you know, massive economic systems and upheaval, pandemics, et cetera. And people from these different areas got together and said, hey, you know, we, we kind of see complex systems doing things that are similar, whether you're talking about tribes in Papua New Guinea or you're talking about development of nuclear weapons, we see the same patterns over and over. And so they right. got people like, I mean, can you imagine being in the room with like Margaret Mead, John von Neumann, Cloud Shannon, and Licklider, the guy from the internet? I mean, right, right. In the same room. What came out of it was really a lot of patterns for what we now would call second order cybernetics, building mm -hmm. off of Norbert Wiener's work, really going back to the 20s. And the interesting line that you can draw through this is Norbert Wiener, of course, had founded cybernetics that was very famously used in World War II for the Battle of Britain. He was MIT, and he invited a couple of researchers, biologists, to come into like the double E department. Mm -hmm. um, they were named uh, uh, McCullough and Pitts. This was a team that originated artificial neural networks. And so they, there's a, a paper I've linked there. It's called What the Frog's Brain Tells the Frog. Sorry, What the Frog's, frog's Eye Tells, the, frog's, tells the frog's Brain. Right. And so is, is this first notion of having artificial neural networks thresholding what later led on to, you know, Minsky and others picking up the ball. Mm -hmm. The graduate student who's the number two author on that paper is Umberto Maturana. So he was actually a grad student on the original neural network team and then later part of Project CyberSyn. And then later authored Autopoiesis and Cognition, which informed, you can really draw a line from there into our contemporary work in AI with you know, right, right. tech giants. I think the important part there is to really understand that when you, know, you got these giant brains together talking about the world's problems right after World War II, a lot of what they came out with, there was a lot of architectural patterns. There's a design group in San Francisco, Donahoe Design, that had done a lot of work on, on taking notes about the Macy conferences. I'll look up the links for that, but some of the Donahoe- Wait, do, you said Don, Donahoe design? Yeah. Is it Donahoe? Is that the Donahoe at Stanford? Different one. Different I, one? I, okay. I don't know. They may be I, also a really fantastic researcher. I have enjoyed some lectures uh, working in the area of probabilistic programming, uh, basically uh, approximation algorithms. Yeah, Donahoe's done some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, well, actually, Dave, so David Donahoe, his 
brother, I think Andrew Donahoe is here in Austin. Oh, your <laughs> brother? Austin, quiet the meters. I, I know, I know. I, Andrew's a friend. I didn't realize. I, well, I thought. Oh, I just said those podcasts. I thought that they were brothers. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll check out. Well, we'll, we'll find. We'll check it out. All right. So I don't want to start a bad rumor here, but no. Well, I, I thought mean, that speaking, they were. Speaking of AI, though, I mean Donahoe was the one who led a team, basically doing sort of, I guess, what would you call it, outsourcing. There's a better term for this: crowdsourcing for mm-hmm. a paper. I think it got published in Nature that it had like 150 authors on it. But again, taking these principles to heart, how right. could you have systems of people and machines collaborating together at scale and come up with actual original math? And a lot of that was kind of the ideas going on around Stanford in the 80s in yep. know, the AI team, the AI group that was there, which I got a good dose of. I think there's a lot of work to go back and explore it. Teubner's writings are really rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one, Nicholas Luhmann was a social science professor, basically, he also was at Stanford, but he wrote Social Systems, which is autopoiesis applied to social theory. And there's, there's many others. I think um, a lot of times when people talk about AI, hard AI even, they get tripped mm-hmm. up on this idea of how can we have artificial consciousness and big brain? And right. It immediately goes to consciousness and the individual sense making, right? I don't know what that means. How can you have a thousand cells cooperating? That's my question. Well, so I want to take this, this kind of two, back to that that original question. If you think about the corporation, and this, and I will for listeners, I promise we'll tie these back together in kind of <laughs> very interesting and mind blowing ways. But if we go back to the corporation, I, my recollection was the earliest corporations they were actually term limited. They were not perpetual. They were designed to be like, okay, you all are going to go and fund a ship. Some good people are going to get on that ship. The ship's going to go somewhere. You have a charter, and yeah. and hopefully they don't die. But if they come back and there's some good stuff on that ship then here's how we divvy up the earnings and the winnings, right, from, from that venture. So these, yeah. so you form a corporation to go and create the limited liability vehicle for the, I guess, vehicle in this case, <laughs> pun unattended, but you create a limited liability collaboration to then, whatever, govern the, the proceeds and whatnot. And so the idea that they were limited in term was actually part of the original thing. But I think it's really interesting, like, if you think about the question of human... So today, you could ask anyone, and you would say, yes, the planet, of course, we have sovereignties, and we have sovereign governments, some form of militaristic relationships between them for hard kinetic power. But the vast majority of the day-to-day stuff that people deal with actually comes from the movement of resources and capital and all these things that happen through the vehicle of the corporation, the modern corporation that is actually the structure of human collaboration that governs the vast majority of our daily lives, at least here in the developed world, let's say, right? And so in that case, you know, when you think about it from that lens, you say, well, you know, we could live, if we lived in a war-torn country, then it would be the, the, the local warlords and the, and the kinetic power wielded by their machine guns or whatever that govern our daily lives. But in, you know, not war-torn countries, we're governed by laws, but those laws are generally funded, let's say, strongly written, <laughs> ghost-written by corporate interests, and really we're employed by corporations. So the vehicle of the corporation, the structure, the principles behind it, that is really how we play the game of living human life in a peaceful, mostly peaceful world. But it really is meant, it was designed and originated to solve a particular human collaboration problem. Namely, specifically, calling back something you said, the allocation of risk. And it's actually deeply unnatural in a sense, right? The queen herself had to authorize this idea that right. a bunch of people could get together, 
kill off a, a, another person, an unrelated third party, and then not any of them be held accountable for it, right? That's yeah. kind of weird. It's sort of like if you have laws <laughs> against, you know, negligent homicide, if I accidentally get you killed, I'm responsible. But if me and my friends get together and we sign a document, suddenly, no, 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 none of us are responsible. You know, you did your thing. We all make money if it goes well, but yeah, something exactly. that we're, happens, we're, it's yeah. not on us, right? Yeah. That's a really weird thing. Like you wouldn't think about if you try to go to a fishing village 5,000 years ago on the on the side of some river and try to sell this idea to them, it probably wouldn't fly, right? And yet now it's the way all of it happens. It's the way we pollute the oceans and the atmosphere and the soil. It's the way that we do all manner of things, right? Where we privatize the earnings, the upside, and we sort of externalize all the downside. And this has been, this arbitrage in a sense has been exploited almost, I think, to its very end at this point. I think we're, we must be at the end of this game, right? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's really interesting insight there too that you have. I mean, if you look at the history of long standing companies that have far outlived whatever their original charter was, they perpetuate now. I mean, none of the original founders are alive. Their grandkids aren't even alive. If you look at these, almost all of them started in trade and commerce, hard commerce, and mm -hmm. then navigated toward finance. And so there's this shift of financialization. Almost all of the old corporations became almost purely financial companies. And so that's one trajectory that and maybe it's just an artifact of like, if you started 400 years ago and you're still around, maybe there's a selection process that the financial ones were the ones who weathered the storm. But I've got something that, I, to me, it's mind-blowing. Right after 9-11, I had reason to do a road trip from Austin to Las Vegas and back. And I was stopping about partway through, actually about halfway through, still in Texas. For those who don't know Texas geography, it's a very big state. But <laughs> I, very I stopped off about halfway in Pecos. And I'd read a little bit about history of Pecos. And I looked around and I had this startling realization. When you look at Pecos, it's a really remote place. I mean, it's in the middle of the desert. It's actually really hard to live there unless you have external mm -hmm. support. Mm -hmm. It's because of going back to risks that we talked about. And so if you look at, there's this one intersection, it's where the Pony Express Ford was across the river. And if you look, it's like, this is where, when there's nothing but people on horses, they came here. And mm -hmm. then slightly beyond that, they built the train tracks. And so there's the, the railroad crossing, right? That goes mm -hmm. just a little bit beyond that. And then you go back a little bit beyond there. It's like, huh. Well, there's all about telecom, like the central offices right there. And a little bit further, there's like a whole bunch of gas stations. It's like there's these geological layers of what was built in Pecos, because the fact is, unless you had deep pockets, you weren't even getting close to Pecos. And to have something sustained there, it meant it was a large civilization moving force. And at mm. the time, Pony Express was a big deal. The railroads were king for a long time economically. Following that, telecom came out. Also, I talked about gas stations. Standard Oil was kind of a big deal for a while there. You keep going further and further out, you get to like Walmart. I mean, and at the time that I was doing this research, AT&T and Walmart were two of the largest firms. And so it, it really struck me that unless you have sufficient resources to project power and get rid of the risk in a place like Pecos, you're not really a big player. So when you can look at those remote places, you can almost see like this geological layer of who's been the top dog over the centuries. And of course, the sad commentary is across the freeway, across from Walmart, they, they have a private prison. And, and I hope that that's not the trajectory. But it, it does go to your point about how do you externalize risk? How can you really make changes in the world? And over the years, 
it's changed hands, but the form has stayed the same. I mean, well, it, you know. there's two things. First of all, I actually did end up driving through Pecos not too long ago. <laughs> really? It's an interesting little place. Yeah, yeah. It's in West Texas. There's a lot of it's. I love it. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of land there. But going through Pecos, and for anyone of our listeners who might be listening to this in Pecos or in routes through Pecos, there's no shade. I don't think Paco is saying Pecos is so remote and so so in the middle of nowhere that if you've made it in Pecos, then you must have made it everywhere else, which I think is kind of what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I thought you were going to make a different point with that, actually, about uh, something else, but more of a gunstrom steel kind of thing. But anyway, all, all that stuff about the... There is a thing about like the infrastructure and the reach of the infrastructure and almost the utility of being ubiquitous is itself. It's again, that thing of like quantity has a quality all of its own. Ubiquitousness is a value all of its own, right? So there's something there. But the thing you're talking about groupware and financialization, I think is very interesting. And this kind of touches a little bit on some of the cybernetic aspects of this, which is, okay, if you're in the 1600s, East Indies company of some sort or the other, Number one, you have to settle risk and you have to figure out insurance and things like this. And it's great. The queen gives you a cover to say, yeah, don't worry about if people die. It's not your problem, right? But the second thing that you also need is from an accountancy perspective, you need to track, well, you just have to have an accurate ledger. And you need to build essentially the intersubjective trust among other players that you do keep an accurate ledger, right? And so it's actually, I guess what I'm trying to go with this is to say that as a vessel of internally coherent memory about not everything in the world, but memory about some very important things, which is who paid how much and who gets how much, right? At the very least, your coherence zone about that particular set of intersubjective truth. And so financialization being where they end up could be a consequence of, tell me what you think about this, maybe financialization is actually the most durable implementation of groupware in a physically violent and unknown world at the time, that financialization, we, you know, I think there's a valence of, there's a sense of pejorative when you talk about financialization. Oh, they're they're merely financial entities. But what if that for a certain period of time, when you're dealing with physical goods, physical risks, when there's a lot of different regulatory regimes, let's say that you're moving things between, you actually just to be able to durably remember the numbers in a double entry ledger, like. That's actually quite valuable. And that's the most simple, durable piece or unit of groupware to start with. Right. I, I mean, take it to, I'm tribal is not the right word, but a, a group of people you're really close with. Take it to the level of like a money party. I mean, here's a bunch of friends who pull their money and like every week somebody gets to yeah. go and use it. I mean, that is just, and it, it changes the world. And if we look back in, in human record, what's the earliest writing? I mean, we, we have cuneiform on clay tablets. That's right. No, they're, they're, the, the Sumerian tablets were tracking, right? How, how many yeah. sheep and how many exactly chickens and things like that. Right, right. The, yeah. the evolution and, of human written language. Well, there was that and also tracking floods and tracking the uh, seasons, right? When it's planting, when it's harvesting. And to some extent, if we take one step forward from this to say, okay, at least it has some kind of memory, right? There's a memory here in this entity of of human collaboration, right? Because it's all human collaboration. We make the rules. We decide we're a corporation. We decide we're not, whatever, right? So people decide they're going to do this corporation thing. At which point, as you talk about the fact that they're perpetual, durable, people can flow through them, uh, in a sense, a ship of the- we created a ship of Theseus construct. If we talk about autopoiesis and we talk about there's something emerging from this or it having cognition and even agency beyond the aggregate agency of the individuals that comprise it, right? Because this is really the question of emergence. 
is when does the whole become bigger than the sum, mere sum of the parts? So when a corporation emerges these additional properties, some that are regulatory, we endow with the ability to have insurance or to externalize its whatever bad things. But there's something else. It's able to remember things. It's able to remember things. It's able to act through people. What are the other things that start happening where you could argue that there is an autopoetic sense of this system? <laughs> well, I mean, this is something where some of the cyberpunk authors are really on this vibe. They always have a name. They always have a brand. They always have a visual depiction. It goes back to some Greek concepts of rhetoric, really ancient rhetoric, where to express an idea, you had to have a sound, a shape, a word. And I mean, it, it, it's almost like you're conjuring demons. You know, you've got the little glyph there, but there's a magic incantation. It just kind of a callback. But in the Bible, you recognize as the name of the beast, right? The na <laughs> names, actually in modern world, unfortunately in the modern world, we've, we've walked away from the power of names, even though all our fantasy authors and sci-fi authors know this, right? Ursula sure. Le Guin, the true sure. name, name of the wind, same thing, the yeah, power of the word Voldemort, right? In Harry yeah, Potter, yeah. we know this kind of mythopoetically from our fiction stuff, but, but actually in the real world, name has a really, the spoken word and the spoken name has a tremendous power. Sure. And brands take advantage of this. Companies, you're right, they have a name <laughs> and a brand. There's always a glyph. There's always a word version of it. There's always like a service mark, some kind of, those are a little bit more mutable. I mean, the service marks come and go, but they're definitely, I mean, like you remember some of them, like we bring good things to life. You have these. And again, they really touch on our notions of, of striving for immortality. Um, uh -huh. All the stories, all the fictional depictions of striving, whether you're talking about, you know, getting three wishes from a genie, it comes back to a lot of these same kinds of representations that we see now in our, our, our you know, constitutional law, right? Well, maybe not constitutional, but, but effectively US, U.S. code. I think there's a lot to learn there, though, again, going back to AI, because we want to build automated systems. And mm -hmm. I am not the kind of person who thinks that, you know, it'll just be automated systems running around uh, uh, playing Terminator. It's, it's more a matter of, like I say, groupware, uh, systems of people and machines, teams of right. systems. I believe that right now, the way that we run companies is exactly that. Systems of right. people and machines together. And that's been a lot of my thesis about work in data science. And how can we push this further? I think that if you look at someone like Fernando Flores and what they were doing, it was brilliant in 1970. The thing is, I find it almost indistinguishable of how they were applying data science to government and, and commerce from what, say, Ray Dalio did. I mean, from what hedge funds do. I mean, how, right. how are these different? I made this argument even as I founded Anaconda. One of the things I realized that we were at the tipping point for the adoption of Python more broadly yeah. in the world yeah. was because we were starting to get brought into finance companies. And finance companies, the big ones, the big investment banks, have more, they spend more money on IT that I mean, they have infinite money to spend on IT, and their people were picking up and using Python. And then you go to hedge funds, which also can invest tremendously in whatever they want from a computational standpoint, and they're picking up Python. And so it's like, well, well, hold on. If the people in the world who care the most about prediction, for whom actionable insights immediately tie directly to profit and revenue, and who can spend money getting the best and breed of whatever is available in industry, they're choosing Python, right? If yeah. that industry, if it's good enough for hedge funds, it's probably good enough for everyone else. And then as I got into this more and more, and, and a thing I started saying is really, I think I've been on other podcasts where I've said this too, that I think in our cybernetic future, every single company has to see itself as essentially 
the same way as a, as a hedge fund does. Every single company is a hedge fund. And not the sense that they're sitting there trying to you know, arbitrage the markets and end the day with zero risk. It's more about the fact that they have to see themselves as prediction engines that are tied to a certain amount of existing capital and land and leases and equipment and, and obligations and AR and AP and all this other stuff. There's all this stuff. But at the end of the day, what is this giant blob of this human collaboration that is this company? It has to have a position on the market. It has to actually make a prediction about what it thinks. It's sort of, it goes very much to the Norwegian and the, the OODA loop from exactly. Air Force, whatever it is. Yeah. You must have a theory of change. You must have a theory of action. You must have actually cognitive facility that gives you a prediction. You call a shot, you make the shot. And the sad truth is based on what I've seen in my consulting and talking to lots of other peers who work in companies, most companies today don't actually run in this manner at all. They spend mm -hmm. a lot in technology. They spend so much money on technology and software and IT services. But at the end of the day, they mostly see themselves as industrial era, physical transmutation or energy transformation kinds of things. They're not really cognition engines, but I feel, and maybe and for me, this seemed like an obvious thing when I first came up with this like 10 years ago, but I feel like now the more I talk about it, more I look out in the world, I'm kind of weird to see the world this way, but I feel like the world we're coming into will rapidly convert and transform into only being inhabited by entities. Like the entities with agency, the entity making all the money are going to be entities that see themselves fundamentally as thinking cognition collaboratives first. I love where you're going on that. I, I, there was some work that Ben Lorick and I did, I guess probably 2018-ish. It was interesting because we, we were trying to see for companies that are adopting AI, what's the contrast between firms that are really making a lot of progress and doubling down on their investments in data and machine learning, but using it as you're saying, not just because they want the data to worship, but because they're building up a contingency plan. Um, mm -hmm. So they're kind of like these reinforcement learning engines. What's the contrast between those companies and the companies that just aren't even started yet? I mean, they're like, right. They and so what separates them? And it always, almost always comes back to the top where it's like the leadership just doesn't want to hear about it. They're yeah, like, hey, right. no, 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 you know, sweep it under the rug. I'm going to retire before that's a deal. So I don't even want to bother. You know, people are using probabilistic risk-based system. I don't want to hear the word risk. Just right, know, don't right. even come to me with this. And so we, we started looking at that and, and we noticed that McKinsey was doing a big study, McKinsey Global Institute, uh, mm -hmm. Michael Chewy. And it was leading this idea that there's really kind of like a Peloton breaking away from a whole bunch of other companies. Yeah, A absolutely. lot of companies are just like mired in tech debt. They're not going anywhere. And then there's this like Peloton that's saying, you know what? Good luck with that, but we're doing something very different. And McKinsey kind of came out along similar lines. There was also an HBR study similar too that mm -hmm. said, you know, I, we're going to reach a breaking point. I mean, there's, there's a point where all that tech debt amasses, and there's a whole bunch of companies that may have been well capitalized in your favorite stock market, but they become acquisition targets because the yeah. others get bigger. Well, and, I, and I, I, I see like the, for me, I guess the way I thought about this, there's, there's a couple of things I thought about, uh, about how can the world radically transform over the next 20 years, assuming there's not nukes flying because of whatever, or, you know, assuming all the things, okay, yeah, yeah. but if... Uh, if things continue, what must it look like? Well, based on what I've seen, the impediment to digital transformation is always people, mentality, mindset, up to the board level, really, not just, you know, so they're tied to the capitalists themselves, ties to the investors, right? 
And so the way we measure, and in publicly traded companies are just so screwed in this regard, right? Because the entire class of analysts are equipped with a very, very outdated, I would say, frame for looking at financial performance, for understanding what future prospects can look like in the face of such massive change as what we're seeing today. Like it really is, it's not even a steam engine just showed up or, you know, like the industrial, the internal combustion engine has entered the chat along with, you know, a few thousand liters of, of oil. No, it's like, actually we're in a time now where people are able to think better and predict better and think faster. And that will just compound as we wire more and more sensors and do more edge computing, more IoT and all these things, all of it compounds into this thing where you're absolutely right. There's a breakaway Peloton of people who, for whom it's not even a question. You don't have to convince upper management. Upper management is telling you, you need to do this better. No holds barred. And it seems like at some point, just like in a thunderstorm, there must be an inversion. Those entities that are equipped to do, to believe and invest in thinking and human collaborative sense-making augmented with cybernetic systems, AI sensors, all this other kind of stuff, but that the ability to think and predict better is actually the, the key asset. And you glom on, it's like a hermit crab moves into a new shell. You find some industry that's not doing so well, or that you know you can commoditize, drop the bottom out of the price. You just go and just, just take it, right? So right. as opposed to hedge funds, merely, merely running in these pristine glass steel offices, they actually start buying stuff and then they can get better information and make better predictions, take better actions. Yeah. So these brains, disembodied brains and jars come around and start buying bodies that are part of their extended power suit. That I think is what must happen. Like, I think that's what must happen because these companies by themselves are just not gonna evolve brains fast enough. They will may maybe get a bit of a brainstem, but they just won't get there fast enough. Well, I think to get there, well, there's two points. One is to unpack the idea, the notion of prediction. And the other is to talk a little bit deeper about reinforcement learning. The idea is that there's sort of a cult of prediction. It's like, I've had this from senior management <laughs> before. It's like, you're a data science team. Give us the number and we'll bet all Mental of our money compute. that number. Right. Yeah, you know, Mental compute. Like, no, that doesn't work. That's fragile. You'll this is not how hedge funds work, okay? You don't, right. you don't put all your money on Black 21, you know, and just spin right. the roulette disc. So instead, you really want very sophisticated contingency plans. And this is a lot of what I've learned out of, say, working with reinforcement learning is you're not trying to predict the next set. What you're trying to do is build a very complex, deep learning-enabled set of contingency plans. So you don't mm -hmm. come up with a model. In fact, some of them are model-free. You come up with a policy. And the policy says, hey, if things go out of kilter, here are some of your most optimal paths back into an optimal range of where you'll survive. Right. And from there, you can optimize. But things will get out of kilter more often because the kind of environment that you're talking about there, the ones that will succeed, are dealing simultaneously with, gosh, we have political crisis. There's a chance of nukes flying. We have a couple of pandemics going on at the same time. By the right. way, you know, there's an air mass coming out from Africa that's like 45 centigrade. On top of that, we have a, a you know, a, a economic meltdown and a, a global supply network problem. TLDR is all of your Excel spreadsheets are broken. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> right? Essentially, none of these things are linear. You can't even do a cubic, you know, right. cubic spline fit like that poor dude under the Trump administration. Tried to, <laughs> like, 
you're like the cubic, you try to fit a cubic to the thing. But yeah, like it's, the world is becoming more complex. Well, it's always been complex, I suppose, but we're now at a point where everything is always in the two to three sigma range. It's in our and face. It's, you cannot ignore it anymore, right? So that is sort of the, the pressing crisis on why a prediction, or sorry, better cognition yeah. is the thing you have to do to survive. Yeah. It's the gear check, right? Like you can't even survive if you don't have it. One of the most obscure mathematical treaties about cognition, I'll, I'll say it's obscure, I'll probably get in trouble for this, but one of my favorites is one that, that kind of got superseded. So you don't see it in schools as much, but it's by a, a French mathematician named René Tom. And he was going into very advanced areas of math to describe how is it that a person can think to be able to throw a spear and hit the prey? Like there's an antelope running. I'm going right. to get in the mindset of that antelope. I'm going to throw the spear where the antelope is going to be, not where it is now. And right. I'm going to feed my family. I mean, that kind of feedback loop is very complex. And mm -hmm. it is that kind of cognition as a form of prediction of very complex things. And that is that is really core to human intelligence. And that's how we work as groups to do things like that is really a lot of, of where we've evolved. Well, and the brass tacks of it is this, right? Your body, 25% of your calories, I think, goes to your brain, even though it's 5% of the mass or something like that. So you cannot have the VP of like cartilage in your knee complaining that the brain's getting all this oxygen and sugar, right? Like the VP of cartilage in your knee has to just kind of be okay with it. Because he's going to get sugar and he's going to get oxygen because the brain is figuring out all this other stuff and integrating all the sensors, right? And remembering things. And I think this is the kind of thing where when you have human organizations that have operated in the mode of the sustaining thing for so long, and you have Wall Street telling all of the employees what sugar they're taking home in their equity plans on the basis of how well you precisely to the penny hit your earnings every quarter, that whole structure, I think, is just it could it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work for the kind of dynamical environment we're in. And going back to these medieval institutions, right? Or I guess Renaissance institutions that we have around the, the joint stock corporation and whatnot, these set of rules for how people play and how we collaborate. I think that for me, the big sort of the ultimately the question, maybe it's because we've just talked about all sorts of stuff, soaring all over the place. And ultimately, I think for me, the question sits at this, right, which is human coordination. We've managed all of the tools that we have, what makes us the apex predator on the planet, what's given us all the, the great benefits we enjoy as individual humans today. It all comes from human coordination at larger, you know, larger swarms at larger scales and over longer time horizons, able to take action at finer scales, at smaller time horizons ensuring more homogeneity, more consistency and quality or whatever. Like it's sort of this two-folded innovation we've done. More humans, more collaboration, whether it's things like the idea of currency to allow human coordination across over the horizon beyond even cultural barriers. All of it at the same time, we've gotten better and better science, better and better ability to make predictions at fine scales and also then build things that have quality down to you know, nanometer scale. So a cybernetic future where we continue to amplify these capabilities, bigger human coordination at larger scale, at finer time scales, like the finer time resolution, you know, the 15 minute fame just became the five minute became the 15 second trending viral video. That's not just trending for the town that was played on the local AM radio station, but you can have 15 seconds of fame across a billion people on TikTok.
And so a cybernetic future amplifies all of these things, bigger horizons, bigger scale of coordination, bigger sort of coherence, but over shorter time scales, we can do that now. So for the future of human systems living in information age, in light of capitalism seeking maximization of all these things, what does a durable collaboration look like? An intentional one, one where we are actually in the driver's seat saying, we want our value, here's the values we're trying to manifest and live by. How do we harness all this capability to meet those values? Not how must we walk away from our values just to survive, being thrashed around in a technological environment that's beyond any of our ability to reckon, literally the word reckon. We can't even reckon any how any of this stuff works. So that's the question I think that we have to really stare at. I agree. I think, I mean, from my perspective, for what it's worth, I think you've really touched on it already. Uh, you're using the word reckon. I mean, I think the core of, of human intelligence that we've seen over the millennia is really about language and this idea of making language more precise or more durable or are able to act at a wider or longer span. Our notions of what we can do with nanotech these days are essentially a form of language of how we've gone mm-hmm. from using bones and sticks and whatnot to actually be able to manipulate molecules. And, mm-hmm. and I think that as we have encountered these horizons of, God, this is just too complex. I don't know how to deal with it, but we're going to. We've adapted and evolved new language and to be able to manipulate. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that that's a lot of the horizon we're contending with. Now, we don't really have a way to describe memes traveling through global mm-hmm. media other than calling it fake news. We can say memes are fake news. We don't really have a good language the way that, say, I spend a lot of time in Spain and I mean, I love seafood and the way that they can describe seafood or the way they can describe, like if you go to Peru and they can describe corn or or potatoes and they have, you know, thousands of varieties. We don't have that yet for how to really live in global media. I think we have to. And that's Mm. part of a crisis that we're facing now. And I think it will be our language that evolves first. I think that that's definitely been the case. We're talking about corporations over the last 400 years. That's what evolved. It was the legal language, these special incantations to allow it to happen across groups of people over decades or centuries. We had to evolve the language. I think that's a lot of the real artifact of science over time yeah. is that we can, we can learn and we can express. Wow. There's a lot. That I was not expecting that answer. A lot to contemplate there. You're right in the sense that these durable systems require us to speak a different language. Well, I mean, religion right, required us to learn different kinds of languages. But these kinds of human collaborations require different kinds of languages, these, uh, these linguistic ends. <laughs> what's the, what's the quote? What's all these violent, these violent uh, delights? <clears throat> well, me with violent. So, but there's something around, well, okay, not to go down another rabbit hole with language and, and Julian well, get, James I, and all I, that. I get, looking into the corporate metabolism writings, that, that was uh-huh. what we're calling it, was linguistic domain. And corporate like, metabolism. Okay, linguistic yeah. domain, yes. Mm-hmm. Linguistic domains, we can see different domains, like law. There are things that happen when you put certain words together, and they probably don't mean what you think unless you are trained as an attorney. And similarly in finance, there are magic things that happen when you put certain words together in a contract and put money behind it, there will be outcomes. And unless you really understand what's going on in that domain, you might get caught at unawares. This also happens in marketing Mm -hmm. and advertising. And so we see it wherever there is some kind of communication. We see these different types of domains emerge. They have specialized language. And as we have evolved to have more 
complex language and be able to control it and wield it. That's where we can go out and do these amazing things. And until then, we're just kind of floundering around like somebody, so somebody stick looking at a Mastodon. I could talk about this for hours with you, and we should obviously have a follow-up episode. Okay, great. We are coming to the end of this one, but I want to end with a really interesting, provocative, and maybe deeply unsatisfying question, which is that earlier you said a very interesting word. You said in the application of predictions and all these things, you have some, some kinds of reinforcement learning systems that are model-free, right? Now, model-free is a very interesting term. There's always a model there. You just, maybe the explainability is zero. <laughs> but is there something here? Because this linguistic idea is new to me in this context of what we're talking about. But I'm wondering, and especially in light of, you know, when you look at what things like GPT-3 can do and Dolly, I've been playing with Dolly a little bit, absolutely yeah. fascinating. The first innovation for humans, one could argue, I mean, we're sort of, we were born with thumbs, but humans as a species, our great power is language. Language is just right. audio or oral telepathy, but it's actually telepathy of, of a sort, right? Oh, sorry. And so, yeah. and so the fact that we were able to be telepathic with each other and coordinate is like if you're an alien or if you're a, a prey and animal and you have these humans basically coordinating magically, you can't even know, you don't even know, you're totally screwed, right? Humans yeah. are actually incredibly dangerous because we can do this. That's our efficacy and our power. But what you're saying is something very interesting. What if it turns out that the ultimate ends of all of this is we build systems, our only way to collaborate with each other in an environment that's so rich and complex is each of us has to have our own translator, our own envoy yeah. that makes this other incomprehensible world comprehensible just to us. And it's almost like the mathematical duel of the Tower of Babel curse, which is actually humanity ascendant in the futures that we actually are incomprehensible to each other. We actually can only become comprehensible to each other through the mediation of cybernetic systems that then in degrees are able to increase the scope and complexity of what's being expressed. And then to translate it back to us, they turn it into embodied experiences and essentially the memes we understand, right? Because if we become too comprehensible to each other, if our brains become so homogenized that we are able to absorb whatever random pop culture is broadcast, yeah, that yeah. also we're treading water at the top of the ocean, right? So I had not actually contemplated that as a potential positive and not dystopian end. We grow up accompanied by essentially a benevolent tutor or companion who helps us make sense of the world, meets us where we are, gives us the language, gives us the experiences to understand more and more richly and deeper and empathize with other people. And that is our companion. That's our bridge to the world. It's also weird in a way, because of course yeah. I really love human personal connection and all the natural physical empathy that comes from being able to be there with people. On the other hand, it's I hadn't really thought about this as a potential way it could go. Well, what do you think about that? Sorry, I've just been... I love it. I mean, I hadn't put together the idea of like a, a mathematical duel or a contrapositive or so, say, tabu, uh, Tower of Babel, but the idea out of science fiction would be, say, a, a transom. I think like Ursula Le Guin and others really had this idea of transom to describe what you're articulating mm -hmm. there was this idea that, yeah, it acts as an intermediary, but it's a device of language. I love playing with Dolly Mini just as a way of expression. But when you start to see these models that can do multimodal, multiple senses that are learned and generated, 
And when you start to understand, well, what if it wasn't just text and visual? What if we also had auditory and some vibration? It was music. It was a story. Sent. I mean, like the thing you could build is it's, these are really automated. You know, again, to the point about like prediction and all this stuff, forget the prediction. If these were just empathy bridges. So you see someone and you don't understand what they're trying to say or why they feel the way they feel. And the empathy bridge comes in and, and paints a picture of here is why they feel this way, or here's where they're trying to come from. And it builds that bridge. You can, you know, you can, one can imagine building some systems that can achieve 70% fidelity and something like this on certain narrow topics today. But in the future, we could absolutely have a thing where it's, it's just tell me a story, right? Tell me why I should care about this. Tell me, I feel this way about that, but why does that person feel that way about that? I mean, I don't think that this is far out science fiction. I think this is- I don't think it is either. Look at the history of Google Translate. I mean, they crossed thresholds in 2005 and here we are 17 years later. I mean, it's really good. It's really right. amazingly good. And you can use it to travel, right? I mean, it's, it's enabling things that wouldn't have been possible before. I think we're kind of there. I mean, one of the empathy engines that we all tend to experience are, are films. It's like you go mm-hmm. and you see a film. That's right. Like, I'm going to think differently about stuff. And like, this person means something different to me now. One of the things I found really fascinating about Dali was one of the initial areas to report a lot of uptick and usage was in filmmaking because they can cut down the time of storyboards. So from like writers, like having you and I talking on a podcast and it's like, no, we've actually got storyboards. We took their quotes. We ran them through Dali. We got a series. We got a sequence. We're going to start to shoot next week. I mean, right. I think that you close the loop on having that kind of reinforcement learning meets empathy engine and until you've got it as like a Google Translate on your phone. And that's probably the weirdest thing I'm going to say today, but um, <laughs> I think we're there. But maybe that's, maybe this is how we get across the thousand plateaus. This is how yeah. we get across yeah. the hyper individualized, I would say so much of the consumption and so much of the spectation and everything around the westernized experience in general is so individualized and it's feeding the id, creating narcissism. This is maybe our way through that is using these tools to actually not just figure out our preferences to sell more ads to us, but actually knowing us and knowing our friends so well that helps bring us closer through the vehicle of storytelling, through creating novel language, memes, emojis. It's, it's wonderful watching my son, my 12-year-old, yeah. growing up through Discord and with memes and Jiffy and with emojis and all these things around. We can communicate a lot in a meme, actually, right? Um, there's, uh, of course, he's got tired of me saying surprise Pikachu, so I kind of have to retire that meme. <laughs> but there's, but there's, I think the idea that there's richer human experience that's maybe translanguage. And that may actually be the, the next, that language is something we can personalize a bit more. It, really mind-blowing, honestly, but I think one of the most delightful thoughts I've had in a long time. Paco, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for going on this strange journey with me. And there's a lot more we could talk about. Hopefully we will in a follow-up episode. I'd love to talk more about the AI stuff, right? And your perspectives on AI winter, where's the state of the industry today? What should we expect coming forward besides these empathy bridges that we just talked about? But yeah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, Really appreciate, love this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And we hope you found this episode valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can find more information and resources at anaconda.com. This episode is brought to you by Anaconda, the world's most popular data science platform. We are committed to increasing data literacy and to providing data science technology for a better world. 
Anaconda is the best way to get started with, deploy, and secure Python and data science software on-prem or in the cloud. Visit anaconda.com for more information.